Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your partner in success. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths. Networking, negotiating, communicating, leading, career planning, these are all skills that are critical to your career success and really life. Excuse me, I need to cough. But did anybody ever teach you these skills? So my guest, Mark Hirschberg, joins me today on your partner in success radio to help you master these vital skills yielding outsized returns for your career. He's got a really interesting story from tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems. Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, which was dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator. And he teaches there annually at MIT. He received a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master of engineering in electrical engineering and computer science, focusing on cryptography. Say this for me, cryptography. <laughs> I can That's do right. this. That's right. Sorry. And at Harvard Business School, he helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Planamail and Corals. He's also the author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You, which happens to be on my desk as we speak, and we're going to be talking about those essential skills today. Mark, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for the book. I am always so appreciative when people that I interview who are authors and leaders, and they send me their books, and I get very excited. I spend the weekends reading these things. I have this giant bookcase in my office, and every single book in there, it's full to overflowing. I actually need to find room for another one. Every single book in there is from my guests, so you are in really good uh, company, and they're in good company with you. Thank you. Well, it's nice to uh, make it up onto the shelf. Oh, you're on the shelf. Well, right now you're on my desk. So let's talk about you. What What did I miss when I was introducing you? Because you really do have a fascinating history. Well, I, I think you got the, the key parts to it. Uh, as some context for that, my primary career has been relatively standard in that I started as a software developer during the dot-com era and then moved up pretty quickly into management, ultimately becoming a CTO and doing classic CTO work, whether traditional startups or for Fortune 500s who have wanted to play startup and need to bring in someone like me. But I've had this parallel path where I've really cared about helping people with their professional efficacy and what first triggered that and put me on this path where I've now been teaching at MIT for a couple of decades and some of the other volunteer work or other teaching work I've done, it came out of a few early moments in my career. And one of the ones that kind of triggered uh, this path, when I would interview people, I would interview, for example, a software engineer, I'd ask technical questions and they'd give me a technical answer. But then I would ask a question like, what makes a good teammate? what do you look for in a leader? And I would get blank stares because no one has ever taught people how to think about this. And I realized I myself wasn't trained how to think about it. It was only because I knew I wanted to get into leadership roles that I explored it and started to think about those answers. And it's at this moment that I said, you know, we need to train people how we're going to think about this. And that put me on the path that led me to MIT and elsewhere. And that makes sense. Listen, I'm a techie person myself. I'm known as a nerd in stilettos. I had to learn because you know, I will tell people, okay, this is what you do in WordPress. Do, 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 do. And I get this look like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm human. You're you're talking to me like, you know, you are a computer and I'm supposed to make you you're I'm supposed to understand you. 
I had to learn, and this is going to sound pathetic, but I had to learn to make it Homer Simpson simple and speak in real, real words, not code. I dream in code, just so you know. I have, I've been known to dream in short codes when those were a thing in WordPress. So, you know, it's, I get it. And that's one of the skills that we really need to teach people. We have a lot of talk about communication, and it's it's terrific. There's a lot of good communication skills that you can find in books and on podcasts. But one of the important things to remember with communication is recognizing what language your your audience speaks. Now, this is obvious in some cases. Consider if I was going to go over to, to Paris and give a talk. Well, I know they all speak French. I don't speak French. So what does this mean? For everything I say, they're going to have to do some extra mental taxation. They're going to have to take everything I say, translate it into French, and only then can they start to focus on what that content is. Right, So I lose a certain amount of mental capacity in my audience because I'm asking them to, to do work that's not about the content. A better speaker, someone who does speak France, uh, French, could go to France, speak in French, and now you're not taxing in an extra way. They can focus 100% on what the message is. Now, within our offices, we might all speak the same language in terms of English versus French or Spanish, but we still have different communication models different mentality. And so those of us, for example, who live in tech, when we just speak tech, people who don't speak tech, they say, oh, wait, you know, I, I think I remember what, yeah, that term. Okay, let me think about what that is. And now they're focusing on trying to do that translation and they're not focusing on your message. And this is one example, but really it comes from our mental models. It comes from our knowledge of discipline. It comes to even how we like to think. And if we can recognize how our audience prefers to communicate, we can take that closer step and ask them to do less work so they can focus more on our message. And there are different ways that people, you know, they have the, I don't know, I can't even talk. I'm sorry. It's already been a long day and it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. People listen and they learn differently. For instance, I hate videos. I don't like them. I rarely watch TV. I lost my remote a week ago and didn't even recognize that until I sat on the wrong end of the couch and the TV turned on and went, oh, I didn't know it was missing. Don't give me a video. But if you give me audio or written, I'm there. That's how I learn. So there's that as well. It's not just speaking different languages. It's how are you delivering that information to us where we go, oh, got it. Now I need to know more. And then there's also people, all the the modes you mentioned, some are audio, some are visual, but that's all content delivery versus other people might be more experiential. They they don't, don't have me read the book. Don't explain it to me for an hour. Let me just get my hands on. Let me try. And those are more experiential learners. And so this is something within our educational system and certainly for some of the skills that we're talking about uh, within our careers, we have to recognize different people might prefer to gain access to that content in different ways. Very true. And, you know, that's how I learned to build websites. I got in and I broke them and then I fixed them. Yeah, that's the only way it was for me to learn. Don't show it to me. Don't make me watch videos. Don't just let me get in there and hit my keyboard and see what I can do. But we all figure out, I think where we're going and how we're going to learn. And then we find the people, I believe, this has been my experience, that can teach me in a way that I understand. Do you find that to be true? Some of us do have that, uh, do have that recognition and look for it. Other people just settle for what's there and aren't as proactive in doing it. Oh, that's, okay, so let's talk about the book because it is, I mean, I was reading it this weekend. I did not watch the Super Bowl, just so you know. Uh, I would rather read a book. <laughs> so let's talk about this, the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success that no one taught you, which I think is fascinating. But you talk in this book a lot about leadership, which is something that I'm not sure that's really been taught either. Unfortunately, no. If you Think back to your college education. At what point did a professor say, let's talk about leadership? 
Let's talk about when you're going to leave in your job. In your job. Didn't happen. We do get that uh, at the MBA level. People take that. Leadership is pretty much a required course. But for the undergrad, certainly master's and PhD level, we don't have it discussed. And one of the most important points is that leadership does not come from your title. Too many people think, well, leadership, that's what I will do once I'm a director, once I'm a VP, once I have a C-level title. But what companies have told us, and this is feedback MIT has gotten, it's feedback universities across the U.S. has gotten from corporate America. They're saying we want people who are leaders as well as negotiators, communicators, good teamwork, understand ethics. When they say we want leaders, what they're saying is we want people who, no matter their title, are going to stand up and act like leaders. And when you understand what leadership is, you realize no matter where you sit at the table, you have an opportunity to lead, and that's going to help propel your career, even as an individual contributor. Now, I do know that for some people, this is just who they are. You know, they're born with it. It's a skill that they recognized very early on, or it was pointed out to them because they didn't recognize that they had it. But there are so many people who want to be leaders. They want to be top in sales. They they want, 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 but they don't really know where to go to figure out how to craft these skills, to learn these skills. So let's, let's talk about that because one of the things you talk about is how to learn those skills. Where do you go? How do you shift your mindset to recognize what they are, when to use them, do you even have them, and is there something else you need rather than the skill that you think you want? Yeah, you've hit upon an important point. Now, all these skills are learnable. We often think, well, there are natural leaders, and there are, and there are natural hockey players. Some people are just more athletic, but that doesn't mean you can't go out and learn it. And every one of the skills I talk about in this book is learnable as an even more extreme case. A friend of mine wrote the book, The Charisma Myth. And I remember when I read that, I thought, oh, I wish I could be charismatic. And I read her book. I looked at the research and said, wow, okay, it's these things. If you do this, you're going to be more charismatic. And I tried it and it helped. And if you can learn charisma, uh, leadership, public speaking, negotiations, networking, that's all. That's much easier than charisma from at least our, our mental perspective of, of where we're stretching ourselves. So all these skills are learnable. Now, one of the things I recommend based on all the teaching at MIT and the, the teaching that we've seen at Harvard Business School, at other top business schools, it's that this is a different type of learning. So what do I mean by that? we're used to that lecture-based model. We're used to the professor stands up and says, this, 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 memorize this. Okay, and now you understand microeconomics. Or we read a book or we listen to a podcast. And they're all very good for transferring knowledge. Certainly keep listening to, to podcasts and radio shows like this one. But that's good for unidirectional knowledge transfer. When you're looking at leadership, for example, there's no, we'll do... This, 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 and suddenly you're a leader. It's not so linear. So the way leadership is traditionally taught, you get some content from the professor, from a book, but then you have to have that discussion. If you look at how business schools are set up, they bring a lot of people into a class with diverse backgrounds. They bring in a teacher, ex-military, a consultant, a salesperson, an artist. You all come together, and then you talk about a situation. You talk about... How would you lead here? And they're all going to look at it differently. What happens is everyone in the class then gets a richer perspective. They start to say, oh, that's interesting. I would have done it this way. You're going to do it that way. I never would have thought of that. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Might not be my natural style, but I have a better understanding. And there are times I can take some or all of that approach. So as we want to tackle these skills, the best way is to form these peer learning groups, right? Groups of people, we can do this within our company. We can do it with friends. We could do it by creating a local meetup group and just saying, who else wants to develop these skills? But you create these learning groups. I have uh, free resources on my website for how you can do that. You can then get people together, get some content. And sure, you can use my book. It's designed for that. And I give a, a way to break that up. 
but you can use other books. You can use radio shows like this as a source of content. It doesn't have to be my book, but you get this peer group, you get the content in, and then you have this discussion about it. And that's where the true learning happens. And that's really the best way to begin to learn leadership. And then of course, just like hockey, you have to actually practice it. You can't just say, well, I read a book on it. I read a book on playing hockey. I know how to do it. You have to practice it. And we have to practice our leadership. We have to practice our networking and negotiations to take that learning and put it into practice. And while you were while you were talking, I wrote down richer perspective, and then I put an arrow to a new word, curiosity. Because without curiosity, without knowing that you can be taught some of these things or that you even want to learn them, you're kind of stuck. But what you just said, too, just now, peer groups, I mean, that's really where I learn. You know, I get to talking with people who are much better at something, always better at something than I am. And I delve in and I get very curious. And, you know, that's where I learn because they've done it. They know it. They're willing to teach it. And for for these groups, even if you don't have some leadership guru, what's important to remember is in, in school, we have the expert up there. We had the professor. But here, it's not that someone's necessarily so much better than you at this topic, but they have a different perspective because there's not only one way to do it. You might even be overall a better leader, but if they have a different perspective on leadership, it can still enrich yours. You can still benefit, even if they're not as strong as you are, and certainly they from you. So don't worry about you have to have some genius. You have to have some person with a PhD in this group. It's about getting people with diverse experiences and learning from each other. And, of course, you want that initial content to come in so you have some direction and guidance around which to discuss it. But exactly. I think you – you had mentioned something at the start, which was very important, which is changing your mindset. And so step one is recognizing, yes, these are learnable. Because if you think, well, you're either a leader or you're not, you've already said, well, if I'm not, I can't be. And so that's the first mindset change we have to do is to recognize that we can change. And the second is recognizing for each of these skills, it's recognizing the opportunities. So, for example, most people think of negotiations as, okay, I'm going to get a new job and we're going to sit across the table and slide numbers at each other. You you give me this number, I counter with another. And that is a negotiation, but once you understand negotiations, you realize you're negotiating probably every week. Likewise, leadership isn't standing in front of the room and saying, hey, everyone, here's the new plan. You recognize opportunities to lead all the time. And when you get that second mind shift, now all of a sudden, you're going to be much more effective. You're going to see more opportunities to learn and more opportunities to deploy these skills. And this isn't just at work. This is your daily life. Look, I've been known to negotiate in the grocery store. You know, they've got something that isn't showing up properly. I'll talk to them and say, this isn't what the ad says. It's a negotiation. It might be 20 cents, but it's my 20 cents, by golly. Absolutely. Even most stores, even if they don't discount prices, I've gone in and, and tried this as I was developing my own negotiation skills. I went and said, hey, I'm buying a lot here. What kind of discount can you give me? Or if I buy this, will you throw in that? And it's worked. Most things are negotiable. And of course, remember that not every negotiation leads to a successful outcome. So if you try, if you say, hey, what if you throw in this? What if you give me this discount and it doesn't work? That's okay. You still practice a negotiation. One of, uh, one of the Harvard Business School professors I used to know, he always said, if you make every flight, you're not optimizing. And so what he meant was if you're showing up to the airport early enough, right? You get there, oh, I'm always there an hour early okay, you're never going to miss a flight, but now you're spending a lot of time sitting in the airport. And he said, you know, you kind of want to be on the margin. It's the same idea of when you die, that last check should bounce, right? You, you've used oh, every penny every exactly penny. Right. <laughs> right. And so it's the same thing with when we think about negotiations. If all your negotiations work out, you might not be, be pushing yourself far enough. You might not be stretching to try and get things. 
So give it a try. And if it fails, don't worry. Don't think, oh, I failed. Think, ah, I'm pushing myself. Oh, I got that experience. And that's valuable. So get out of that comfort zone. I'm looking at my, I'm one of the few people that has a, a desk phone still. I just don't like to use my cell phone all the time. And I'm looking at my phone, which is a Panasonic. It's got, you know, it's a system. And it was, I think at Walmart or I don't know where I was. I've had it for a number of years. And it was sitting there on the shelf. No box. It was the only one they had left. And I got a manager over there and said, look, I'll take the whole thing, no box, but I want you to give it to me at half price. And he did. And it works just Great fine. Great example. I'm telling you. I forgot all about it till we started talking about this. So we've got these key skills. Oh, let's go back to charisma. I wrote that down and crossed three lines under it for emphasis. I did not know. Now I'm very curious that charisma can be taught. How in the world did she hit on that? I mean, that's that's amazing. I thought it was just so natural that you either had it or you didn't, or you kind of had it, or you know, somewhere in between. But I did not. I thought it was just purely natural. Apparently, it's not. It it can be developed. Certainly, some of us are better. So, in the book, The Charisma Myth by Olivia Fox Caban, she talks about concepts backed by research of things such as warmth how we can be warm people. And we, we all know, we know there are certain people who are very warm and people who are very cold. And if you look at what is it warm people do, you know, it's, it's a certain projection of warmth. It's a certain caring, right? Even if, even if you don't understand the warmth concept, just knowing, can I ask about other people? Can I take an interest in them? Can I show empathy for them? That already is going to move you further along the charisma spectrum. And she breaks it down to a lot of other other raw components. components. Right. And that leads me to networking and negotiations. If you have that warmth or that empathy, which I think is very, very important empathy, it seems to me that it can be one of your really key skills to use no matter what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Very much so. And one of the reasons I put all of these skills into one book, because there are books just on leadership. There are books just on communication or just negotiation, but all these skills really do reinforce each other. Good leaders know how to negotiate. Good negotiators know how to communicate. Good communicators know how to listen. These things all build on each other, and we can recognize how one skill can make us more successful when applying a different one. Oh, no kidding. I'm, really, this is fascinating. So what you're writing about all these skills, and let's hit on them one more time, networking, negotiations, communication. Then let's go to planning your career and be effective at your job. It, to, I have to ask, I mean, isn't being effective at your job the first thing that you want to do or no? Certainly that that's true. I I kind of take it to the meta level in this chapter because this isn't what we talk about in school. In school, we teach you, here's the basics of marketing. Now go do a marketing job and you understand the four P's or you understand some other basic concepts. Great. Well, if you don't do that, you probably shouldn't be in marketing, right? Or if you don't know how to write code, you probably shouldn't be a software developer. And that's the, the base level. And that's what we're training people to do. But let's go a step further. It is understanding how to deliver value in your job. And this can come in a lot of different ways. When we think about our classes in school, we always knew the answer because the answer is what the professor just told us, right? What's on the test this week? Well, it was the content the prior three weeks, right? No surprise there. Professor's not trying to trick us. The problem set you're doing this week, well, it comes from, you know, use the formula you just learned in class. But in the real world, no one is telling you, oh, uh, your boss doesn't say, hey, here's a project you want to work on. And let me give you a hint. Here's the three things you're going to need to do. Here's the formula. Oh, and be sure to talk to Bob to get this input. And Carol's going to have this for you. Maybe your boss knows this and gives it to you. But equally likely is your boss just says, make this happen. Right. Get me this report, figure this out. 
And I'm not going to tell you how to do it. That's why I hired you to figure out how to do it. So understanding how to get that information, understanding how your information helps other people. I've been in way too many companies where someone does not know what one of their coworkers 15 feet away does. So, oh yeah, they're, they're in finance. So I guess, you know, they, I know they write checks. I get my reimbursement from them and I guess when we get a bill, they pay it or they collect money. That's what finance does, right? Well, yes, but did you know they also extend credit to customers? Did you know they're also working on our cash flow management as we grow? In fact, there are reasons why certain projects might get postponed because they just want to manage certain cash flow issues. And that's affecting your job. I'll bet you didn't know that. And so as we understand what the other parts of the company does, we can work more effectively with them. To work in align with them, we can provide more value to them. We can understand opportunities and risks they might bring to us. Or in a very concrete uh, manner, this is a really simple skill that we never talk about, which is managing your manager. And this is something as simple as, certainly if you work for me and you want to pitch me on a big project, doing so 9 a.m. Monday morning, not the best time to catch me. I'm, I'm a night person. Early in the morning, my mind is still working to get going. So knowing when to catch me matters. Also, how do you want to present it? Some people, they want to hear that passionate pitch, right? You got to really sell them on it emotionally. For me, I really want to see a clear delineated plan. So your best way to pitch me is to give me a project plan. For other people, it might be, you know, break down the numbers, right? Or it might be about... Uh, how this is going to help your boss's job. Maybe they're just very self-centered, right? Well, what's this going to do for me? Understanding how to manage your manager and likewise, how to manage your coworkers will make you more or less effective no matter what your actual job is. Again, writing code, doing finance, but knowing how to work with these others can make you so much more effective. You know what I'm I'm scribbling. You ought to see me. I'm just scribbling like crazy. While you're talking about this particular topic, I was writing down that you have to constantly be doing the following, paying attention, listening, and curiosity. I keep coming back to curiosity. So you can't just sit in your cubicle or, in my case, at my desk in my home and not pay attention to what's going on around you. I very rarely see people. I'm an introvert. I don't go out a whole lot. But I listen, I'm in masterminds, I'm constantly, I'm not going to say picking people's brains because that's just, you don't do that, that's not nice. But listening and asking questions, offering information when I can. But to me, the the key to all of this is curiosity. Where can you be? How can you, you know, how can you make life work for you? If you are static in your thinking, if you're saying, this is my job, this is what I do, you're not going to grow. Now, most people are a step above that. They think, well, I'm within this industry or discipline, so I need to develop that. In, in our fields of technology, for example, we know that grows very fast. The technologies that I'm working with today, they didn't exist 20 years ago, even 10 or in some cases five years ago. If I'm not constantly learning new technology, I'm going to become very dated. And that's true for all of us. We certainly know lawyers and doctors have uh, CMEs and CLEs, continuing medical education, continuing legal education credits. They are required by law to continue to keep up with new techniques. And so all of us, we do have to put effort into keeping up in our discipline. However, that is not sufficient. We need to take it a step further. And the example in in my book, uh, I'll give it here, use a a basic example. We're going to do a a sixth grade math problem. This is the the only math I have in my book. And this is because I know even as much as I like math, I suspect you like math, given that you're, you're also into engineering and technology, still most people don't. And so knowing that, I'm going to communicate how most people like to communicate. But I think this, this math problem really illustrates what the, uh, what the point is better than any other I've had. So imagine the following. You have a rectangle, four by 10, 
and you are told you need to extend one of the sides by two units, so either 10 to 12 or 4 to 6, extend one of the sides by two units and maximize the area. Now, we all did this back in middle school. They're probably saying they're thinking, okay, what's, which is the right way to do it? Now, the answer is to extend the short side from 4 to 6, and so you get 60. Right? Okay, well, great. So how often do I need to make a rectangle bigger at work? What does this mean? Well, if we think about it conceptually, what happens when we make that short side slightly bigger? Those two units get amplified by the 10 units, by our long side, right? If we amplified the, if we created the 10 to 12, that only gets amplified by the short four side. So when you work in these shorter lines, these shorter sides, you're amplifying it by the long side. What that means for us, all of us, have short sides and long sides, more than two, of course. So our long side might be our knowledge of technology, our ability to sell, whatever that long side is. And our short side might be our leadership, our networking, our communication, any of these other skills. Continue to develop that long side, but if you put just a little effort into that short side, if in the 30 hours you spend improving yourself this year, you put 20, 25 into the long side, but five into that short side, you're going to amplify your strength and be overall much more effective. And so to your point, you have to be curious, not just about your discipline, but about these other areas and growing just a little, not being the world's greatest communicator, not being the world's greatest leader, but just growing a little is going to give you a much better return on investment for the time you spend. 30 hours? <laughs> My brain just stopped it, when you said that 30 hours, that's it? Well, I would, I would encourage more, but I pick a low number as, as a baseline, right? And gotcha. those 30 hours could be listening to shows like this, reading books, taking online classes. So for most of us, it's more than 30. But even if it's on that low end, certainly just putting a little bit of that into our short sides has a massive return. It really does, and thank you for sharing that. I'm going to go back to what you were talking about, the, the guy who sits 15 feet from the finance guy. What I have found, just through trial and error and paying attention, is that if you, the more you know about the group of people that you're working with, you're working for, the more you can help your customers or your clients, because you may not have the answer. Chances are... Daily, we're going to be asked a question. We don't have a clue how to answer it. But if we know who's working around us, you know, who's doing the kind of work that this person needs, we can say, you know what, I can't really do that or I don't do that. It's not my, my purview, but I know just the person to connect you with. Don't you find that to be true? You know, always pay attention to what's going on around you. Absolutely. It will, first, when we have a problem, and we say, I don't have all the answers. I might know who to go to. Mm -hmm. But it can go even further, which is when you come to me with a problem I need to solve, I might not even know the right questions if I haven't thought about from these other perspectives. And so I want to make sure I have that diversity of thought, all stemming from the curiosity you spoke about, that I went and learned about what's happening in these other groups. And this way, when I see a challenge, I can first be aware of the questions to ask. Because if you're not aware of the question, you're certainly not going to go say, well, I don't know. Let's bring in someone else to get the answer. You're going to think, oh, I know everything and completely miss an important question. When I run department meetings for my team, I like to bring in the executives from other departments on a regular basis and say, hey, here's the head of sales. She's going to come in and talk to us about what's happening in sales because I want my team to be exposed to that to understand what's going on, to have that awareness to think, hey, is there a question I don't even know to ask? Maybe I should go talk to a salesperson. Oh, that's a big thing in the techie industry. The salespeople will offer all kinds of stuff. They have no clue what they're offering, and then they get to the people who have to build these tools, and they're like, what? You said we were going to do what? It's a mess. It happens all the time. 
Absolutely. And if they spent more time speaking with the engineers, let's, let's take sales and engineering. And those two groups are usually very disconnected because oh, sales yeah. is very customer focused. They're very external, closest to the customer. Engineering is usually at the back of the process, right? Because while sales is talking to the customer, marketing is paying attention to the customer, finance is engaging with the customers in some ways, even if it's just sending, sending out bills. Product is trying to pay attention to the customer needs, but engineering is very much in back. And so you, you get like that old game of telephone, right, where the message comes from the customer to the salesperson to marketing to product to engineering and, of course, gets translated along the way. If you short circuit that and have sales and engineering talk to each other, a couple things happen. Engineers have a much better understanding of what customer needs actually are. And engineers, because they have their own unique perspective, will say, hey, product, I know you're telling us we should build this, but I've been hearing, I've been hearing from sales, customers really want this variant of that. What about this, right? And you can start delivering some additional value instead of just, well, this is what I'm told to do. Likewise, the sales folks, instead of, as you point out, just say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll throw that in, whatever it takes to get the sale, because, of course, they're incentivized to close the sale, they can start learning from engineers well, yeah, we could, we could add on A, that's not too much work, but B is really hard, and this is why. And so the salespeople are going to know, okay, if I need to, I can, I can start promising A. If I want to start promising B, maybe I should check first, because what I don't want to do is promise B only to go back and then be told later, we can't do B, and I have to go back to the client and say it, and now I've created disappointment, which as a salesperson you never want to do. So they're going to get a deeper understanding of what it is they can do. And all this comes from improved communications within your organization. And asking questions. Listen, when I started my business, let's see, when did I get my degree? 2001, I think. And I promptly said, I'm never working for anybody else again. I am unemployable. I promise you I am. I have to work on my own. But what I learned after I finally figured out that I needed to have a team that I could not do everything that has to be done by myself, I would never rest. I would die young, truly. So what I had to figure out with my team, and this was a painful process for me because I don't ask them to do anything that I can't actually do. And I was being bossy. It was like, wait, do this, do this, do this. And I was not giving them the full picture. I was giving them, okay, I want you to fix this, do this, but they didn't know why they were doing it. They didn't know what the end result was going to be, which was a huge mistake. It really was because they would provide me with something that might kind of sort of work, but it wasn't what I really wanted or needed, but that was me not filling them in on the big picture. Do you find that this is a big problem? It was a big problem for me. It, it is in many ways. Uh, so first, we see that as a challenge where some managers do that because they feel, well, this protects my job. If I hoard the information, they can't right. get rid of me. I'm the only exactly. one it's a challenge, as you point out, that people don't have the complete picture. It's also a challenge because it means we're limited by the capabilities of the manager. Right? If the manager can't mm. learn this, can't figure it out, well, they're never going to push for a solution beyond what they know. And this is an important shift that we've seen in management over the past, we'll say about 50 or so years. If you think back to the mid-century corporation, so 1950s, you had a manager, and the manager would tell you know, the, the rows of office workers that we see in the movies, they tell them, this is what you need to do, right? And they would take a, a problem or a project and delegate out the small pieces. Each person was a cog. They'd do the piece. They'd hand it back to the manager who put it together. And that's, that's the process of management. And it came from our industrial revolution philosophy of management, which was, okay, you're the person who turns the screw. You're the person who hammers this. You're the person who you know, paints over here. And you each do your steps. And I'm going to supervise to make sure they all happen in the right order and the right way. And then we get the finished product. So my job as manager is to supervise your tasks and make sure each of you do it right. But as we look at today's world, 
it is no longer a bunch of small tasks that come together. And as a manager, I package it up. In fact, today we get these teams of people where we might have engineers and salespeople and finance people and marketing people. We come together and we say, we have this problem to solve. Honestly, none of us know the answer today, but together we're going to figure it out. And today's manager does not have to have the answer. And this is a common mistake thinking that he or she does. You as a manager do not need to have the answer. Your responsibility is to be able to get the answer, is to get the team together to get the answer. So for anyone who is a new manager, never panic saying, oh my God, I don't know the answer. That is not your job. Your job is to make sure your team is empowered to get the answer. And so you can do that by making sure people have these conversations, have that curiosity to ask questions, and that together they can gather the information and that you can help organize and coordinate them, get them the resources they need so that together your team can find the answer. That is management today. Exactly. You're reminding me, and I really don't watch TV or movies, but one of my very favorite movies is Apollo 13. I've always been fascinated with the space program. And there's that one scene where they they open up this box, it's just a bunch of boxes of stuff, and they throw it on the table and they say, fix this. This is where they had to, I think, create the, the there was breathing problems. The oxygen filter, yeah. That's exactly right. And that, to me, has always stuck in my brain because these guys, none of them work together. They didn't even like each other. They might have gone, you know, for smoke breaks together, but that seemed to be about it. And all of a sudden, they've got this pile of stuff, and they had to work together. And I thought that was brilliant. That is, that is such a great example. And we'll contrast that with another example of the space program that unfortunately did not have uh, quite the ending we had hoped for. No. When the uh, when the Challenger exploded, the night before, 24 hours before, uh, the engineers at Morton Thyrocall, that is one of the contractors who built parts of the space shuttle, some of their engineers had alerted NASA to the problem. They said, you know what? It is too cold. We don't feel comfortable launching. We think there's an issue. And so all night, they went back and forth with phone calls. And fortunately, back then, they were, they were faxing information to each other. And this is before we had uh, the World Wide Web. And unfortunately, they did not effectively communicate their concerns. And so the shuttle launched, and we had a very unfortunate, unfortunate outcome. outcome. We, we lost some lives. Right. This came to the fact that these groups were a little more siloed and didn't have good communication paths to each other. In fact, in the, uh, in the postmortem that was done, there were issues about how concerns were raised and then the, the formal paths that they would go up and how those paths didn't allow for kind of a, a good, efficient communication process. On the other hand, I'm going to pull in one more example. Uh, in a certain type of Japanese manufacturing process, I'm forgetting the process. It might be lean, but I think it's something else. There is a rope on the factory floor, and this is a rope any person on the floor can pull, not just the manager, not just the boss. Any worker there can walk over to the rope, pull it, and it shuts down the entire production line. Now, that's obviously oh. very expensive and costly. Yeah, you want to be careful but, doing that, but I like but it. But they said, yeah, if you see a problem, you know, if there's another way, maybe you tell your boss, this is, this is, but this is a last resort, and this is in some ways a communication. right? When you're pulling it, you're saying basically to everyone, everyone stop. right? Hold on, there is an issue. I can't communicate any other way. So I have to communicate in this last resort broadcast way. And so we don't necessarily all need that, that rope in our, in our organization, but we do need to make sure there are efficient ways to communicate concerns and hopefully opportunities as well. And my brain is on fire. I can see that rope dangling in my own head because sometimes I'm my own bottleneck. So, I'm thinking that sometimes I need to, you know, picture that rope and say, Denise, hold up, stop, 
think find you know find somebody to help you and really a good organization is one that creates these communication paths so you don't need to resort to the rope so you can mm-hmm. have people come into the room and you dump out that box and say let's figure this out and because these folks have interacted with each other before they know how to communicate they know how to share information they know how to collaborate and that's what we as managers really need to focus on because again it's not as a manager oh i have to figure out the answer no no i have to figure out how to make my team effective in finding the answer and when you do work with your team in that kind of fashion, which I've learned to do, I had to teach it to myself. Look, when I started my business, there was nobody to teach me a darn thing. I had my little degree, and now what? You know, that was a big question. Now what? I don't want to work for somebody else. You don't want me in your office. I don't play well with others. I run with scissors. And honestly, if you want coffee, you can get your own damn self. Don't ask me for it. I'm not going to do it. So... I had to learn how to do all of these things myself, but then I made the big mistake of clutching it all to my chest. It didn't occur to me. I wasn't being selfish with the team that I you know, eventually brought on board. Many of them have been with me a decade or better, but it never occurred to me, and they didn't tell me. Maybe they didn't think it was their place to tell me, hey, Denise, what are you trying to do here? What's the big – where are we going with this? So I just stumbled along for the longest kind of time. And, you know, I wish it hadn't happened, but now I know better. And, you know, one way to think about how to approach this, we mentioned earlier one of the skills I talk about in the book is networking. We think of networking as I'm going to meet lots of people for when I have a future job need, when I go and look for something. But internal networking is so important. It's important that within our organizations, even companies of 30 people, we go and build up our networks. And, of course, networking is not just, well, I know everyone's name because in a company of 30 people you should, but it's building those relationships with different people in different parts of the organization. So as we think about networking, what underpins all of what we're talking about is building that internal network. So you have connections, you know how to engage with people in these different departments and learn from them. Exactly. So what we haven't really touched on, and I want to get there before we run out of time, we've got 10, 12 minutes, so we're good. Planning your career. Where do you start? I mean, these days, and we were talking about you know, how things used to be 40, 50 years ago, these days, people have multiple careers, sometimes in tandem with one another. You know, it used to be that you would go to work every day. You would, you know, go ahead and, and you know, your job was ended. You would retire. You'd get your gold watch and sit on the porch and wait to die, pretty much. Which, I mean, I know that's an over-exaggeration, but these days, we have so many opportunities to do so many things that how do you plan a career these days? Do you plan a single career? Do you say, listen, I've got these really kick butt skills. I'm going to do this, 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 and probably that too. Where do you start? It begins by asking a bunch of questions. And this is true, whether you're 22 right out of college, 42 mid career, even if you're 62 and saying, what do I want to do for the next few years? Start by asking a few questions. These are in chapter one. It's also available as a free download on my website. And these are questions, not just about your career. It starts with your life, right? What do I want out of life? Where are the places I might want to live? What are the goals I have? How much money do I need, right? Just enough. So, hey, I've got, you know, roof over my head and I feel comfortable and can take a vacation or I need three beach houses, right? What are those goals? What's the flexibility that you need? Right? Do you like structure? I, I want nine to five and my weekends free, or I want things a little more, more variable. I don't mind working nights and weekends, but I also want to be able to saunter into the office at 11 if I want to take the morning off. What are the certain skills or activities you want to employ? There are people who say, my dream is sitting in a dark room in front of an Excel spreadsheet and doing Excel macros and formulas, and that's exciting. And there are other people for whom that's a nightmare. 
And so we recognize, okay, what are these skills? Once you start to answer these questions, you can then, if you're not sure what you want to do, because some people by the age of five, they say, ah, I want to be a doctor and that's your dream. But if, if you don't have that clarity, you take these questions, then you start talking to people. You talk to everyone you can meet and ask them, tell me about your job. What do you do? What do you like? What don't you like? What should someone going into the field know? And you start to gather information and you hear, hey, these jobs sound kind of interesting. Those jobs, not so much. So you can begin to eliminate. You can begin to head in a certain direction. Once you have a sense of the job you want down the road, you then have to say, okay, I might not be qualified for today. In my own career, when I was a software engineer, I said, oh, I know I want to be a CTO. But to be a CTO, that means more than just being a good programmer. I need to learn how to budget. I need to learn how to hire. I need to learn how to do corporate strategy. I need to be able to work with marketing and sales and finance. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Well, I better go and learn it. And so from that job way out there, you want to backtrack a path and say, what over the next two years, five years, 10 years, however long the path would seem to take, what are the intermediate steps, perhaps certain jobs along the way, and how are you going to develop your skills? How are you going to sequence it? Because, of course, you can't learn all of this in the next two weeks. So you want to lay out that path. And most importantly, we have to remember, it's never going to work exactly as you plan. So you're going to have to revise. You're going to revise this path. You're going to revise, what am I going to work on? I thought I'd be doing this, but nope, I realize opportunity to do something else instead. You might even change that final goal. And that's okay because this is your plan and it needs to work for you. So we want to create a plan, but the most important thing to remember, the plan will regularly change. So you want to regularly revisit it and update it. How often do you think we should revisit it? At a minimum, I think you should revisit it once a year. If your company does an annual review, reviewing it right before that annual review, that's a great time to do it. Say, okay, here's a good checkpoint. If your company does semi-annual or quarterly, feel free to do it then. Other good times to do it, if you're ever thinking of taking a new job. Uh, so one thing that, that triggered this in, in me, I was working at a company very early in my career. I was happy at the job until one day my boss said, by the way, I'm leaving. I'm going to start a new company. I'm taking these guys with me, and I'd like you to come along. And the other executives at the company said, look, we, we all know John's leaving. He's taking folks. He's probably asked you. We want you to know we like you. We want you to stay here. And I had just been happily going along, doing my job, not really thinking about it. But now I had a choice. And I had to ask myself, well, how do I know which path is right? I didn't know. And that's what got me thinking about career plans. Because once you have this plan, and you can say, well, here's where I'm going. Right? When you come to a fork in the road, how do you know which way to go? What well, helps if you know your destination? So by having that destination, I could then look and say, which path is going to take me the right way? In this particular case, I realized, you know, I had more than two options. So I went and looked, I actually found a third job, and that's what I took. So anytime you are changing jobs, right before you change, it's a good point to update your career plan. So then you can evaluate jobs with respect to what your current career plan is. You took a third option. And I was going to ask you, okay, which one did you go? And I didn't even think about a third one. So options, and they're always out there if you're paying attention. And even if you're not changing a job, when you're within a company and your boss says, hey, there's this project, what do you think about being put on this project for six months? right? Or if you hear of a project and might want to join it, how do you evaluate, is that project going to move you forward or not? Because that's, that's a job change. It doesn't change who's signing our paychecks, but it is changing the nature of our job, which changes our development. It also changes how you it, – it takes you a bit out of your solid, solitude, I guess, because it's easy to be in a job, be in a position, and because you're not doing something else – you kind of get stuck. I've noticed that time and time again. If you're not 
going, even if it's in the same company, if you're not going to do something a bit different or a lot different, you can, you know, what is what happens when your muscles atrophy? Your brain kind of atrophies. I have unfortunately seen this time and again where people stay in jobs years longer than they should have. And they have mastered those skills, but they are not developing new ones. And it just limits their career. And it, now it goes back to the questions. I know some people where they say, yeah, the job is just so I have enough money so I can go fishing on weekends. And that's what makes me happy. And as long as this job gives me enough money, that's fine. And great, stay in that job. Your job in that case is a component of your larger life. But for people who say, you know, my job, it's, it's not just uh, an input. It's not just money for the rest of my life, but something I enjoy. It's something I want to grow in. Then make sure you are actively growing in it. And, and when I see those people get stuck, it, it really pains me because I know they're missing out on their potential. The corporate world as a whole is missing out on more potential from them, but no one is unfortunately developing it in these folks. That's too bad. And that leads me to my final question. I have to ask it. You know, when when the pandemic first started last year, we all thought, okay, three weeks. It's been way, way more than three weeks. In fact, in my you know, the first couple of uh, episodes after we started getting shut down and told to stay home, and I didn't even, rec- you know, I didn't talk about it because I thought it was just going to go away. Now we can't avoid it. So, Mark, I have to ask you, what are you seeing that is completely different or people should really be recognizing and paying attention to and shifting with remote work and a lot of that some of it's never going to go back into the office it's things have changed and there is no normal and we're not going to go back to normal whatever the heck that was what's your best advice this is more than a two-minute answer but the uh, i the know short version, we have to remember that our communication channels have narrowed we no longer have those water cooler conversations. We no longer have the passing by someone's cubicle and, oh, I just want to drop in and mention this to you. So we have to be a lot more proactive in our communications and how we engage with other people, more thoughtful in it. We also have to recognize our own managers are not as aware of what we're doing because literally out of sight, they don't they don't see it. You know, it used to be they're, they're walking around. They kind of see who's active. They'll overhear things as they walk by. They get none of that, right? It's very binary. They either see you or they don't. So we have to be more proactive in kind of touting our successes and contributions because they're not as visible. Without being obnoxious, which is difficult for yeah. some people. <laughs> it really is. So what are you hearing from managers? I mean, what frustrations are they having? Because this is very different. I mean, we've gone from the industrial age to you know, now the technology age, and now work from home, which is part of the technology age. What are managers' biggest issues right now? What are you hearing? Just uh, the same frustration as employees, because most managers I know care about their employees and saying, we know this is hard. We know there's Zoom fatigue. We know our teams don't feel as engaged or as coherent. We're now working with teammates we have literally never met. And so it's hard to build up that that team cohesion. It's hard to get that personal connection with our employees. And that really bothers managers as much as it bothers employees. I would imagine that it would. And cohesion, that's a good that's a good term. I I don't know about you, but Zoom drives me crazy. If I've had to do two in a row, I'm exhausted. I can't take any more. And I know some people are saying, this is all we do. It's like meetings squared. You know, we don't want to do this all the time. We have to do it, but is there a better way? And I suspect that question will be answered down the road. Absolutely. And so I I know I mentioned a few things uh, that you can get on the website, which is the careertoolkitbook.com. And that's where you can download resources to create these learning groups and get more information on the book or some of the questions that we talked about for developing your career. Exactly. And I was just about to ask you, where could people find you? So I know you're on LinkedIn. I think we're connected here, there, and yonder. But is that particular website the best place to find you? 
thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can reach out to me. You can see the social media where you can follow me. You can also download the free app that contains a lot of the information that we talked about today, and that's in the book. Thank you. Before I let you go, was there anything else that you want to share with our audience before we close this down? Remember that all these skills are learnable. And so whether you're using my book or the Charisma Myth we talked about or any one of a lot of great books, go out and recognize if you can change that mindset and you recognize you can learn these skills, you're going to advance your career much faster. Mark, thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you, and I thank you for the book. I thank you for all of the wonderful tips and the advice that you shared with our audience. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and Prime. I'm also on Audible. And anywhere else you consume your business podcast, just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Mark, thank you so much. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.